Hello and welcome to the Verity Podcast for Thursday, December 7th, 2023. The podcast that separates the fact from the narrative spin. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Melissa Topsher with today's headlines. Kevin McCarthy plans to quit Congress. Israeli forces reportedly surround the house of Hamas's leader. Kiev's mayor accuses Zelensky of becoming an autocrat. Boris Johnson faces a COVID inquiry. Biden says he's only running for re-election to counter Trump. Trump says he'll only be a dictator for one day. The Hollywood Actors Union approves a new three-year contract. A U.S. senator claims foreign governments use push notifications for spying. The World Food Program suspends distribution in North Yemen. And a study claims that the Earth is nearing five climate tipping points. In our first story, Kevin McCarthy will quit Congress at the end of the year. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Wall Street Journal, NBC, Politico, Roll Call, Fox News, and Axios. Former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican of California, announced in a Wall Street Journal op-ed on Wednesday that he will leave Congress at the end of the year, closing his nine-term career in the House. Though his future plans haven't been immediately laid out, he intends to remain involved in GOP politics. This comes roughly two months after he became the first speaker ever to lose the gavel mid-session at the hands of eight members of his own conference. His speakership was the third shortest in history, lasting just 269 days. Politico first reported in early October that the ousted speaker was strongly considering quitting Congress. If he formally steps down after Friday at 5 p.m., California's Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom can choose whether to call a special election or keep the seat vacant until the next election. The timing of the announcement frustrated some of his fellow Republicans, as McCarthy made a decision only two days before California's filing deadline of December 8 for prospective candidates. His 20th district, made up of the suburbs and farmlands around Bakersfield and Fresno, is considered safely red. The House will have 220 Republicans and 213 Democrats at the start of 2024, with two vacancies following the departure of McCarthy and George Santos meaning that the GOP can only afford to lose two votes to pass a bill given the required tally of 218. A special election for Santos' 3rd District of New York has been scheduled for February 13th. Representative Bill Johnson, Republican of Ohio, is also expected to resign early next year, but his loss will likely be counterbalanced in the near term by the departure of Representative Brian Higgins, Democrat of New York. Thank you, Melissa, for laying out the facts on our first story. We're going to start our first round of narrative spins with a right narrative provided by the American conservative. McCarthy has finally confirmed what Americans knew. His congressional career has come to an end. Though praising his fundraising talent in a farewell address that reads like a resume to impress the establishment and financial center right, he should explain why he decided to undermine America First candidates to protect his congressional leadership at the expense of a larger House majority. History has now left the McCarthy era behind for the GOP and the right-leaning populist movement that underpins it. Here's the conservative narrative from The Spectator. While McCarthy isn't irreplaceable, his retirement from Congress is another indication that the era when the GOP valued its diversity and embraced good-faith disagreements may be gone forever. 
Matt Gates and his gang of eight are willing to push the Republican conference to the extremes, even if that means risking the implosion of the party and losing control of the House. More traditional conservative values and figures are needed to regalvanize the power of the GOP. And the first nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community today says that there's a 50% chance that Republicans will win control of the House of Representatives in 2024. Interesting that there's no left narrative there, progressive, just right and conservative. I think the Democrats are just happy to sit back and watch the bonfire burn that's happening. Yeah, it's like this seems like a right of center issue. Let's let them talk about it themselves. Now, work it out amongst yourselves. Yeah. I'm verklempt. <laughs> they, 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 <laughs> and they don't even need, need to do anything to, to stir things up. It just kind of happens themselves with what's yeah, going on in there. Right. Yeah, we best just keep quiet yeah, on this let's, one. Let's, 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 let's just watch the show. Yeah, no kidding. According to Netanyahu, Israeli forces have surrounded the Hamas' leader's house. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by CNN, France 24, Reuters, the Anadolu Agency, Time, and Guardian. In a video addressed on Wednesday, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu claimed that Israeli troops had encircled the residence of Hamas leader Yahya Sinwar, though he didn't indicate where the home is located. The Israeli Defense Forces, or the IDF, have been operating in southern Khan Yunus, where Sinwar was reportedly born. This comes as the IDF is reportedly in the process of encircling Khan Yunus, with an Israeli commander saying that Israeli troops are attacking Hamas strongholds in the south adding that Tuesday was the most intense day of fighting since the ground war began. Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, or the PIJ, confirmed Wednesday that they were confronting Israeli forces in the city's outskirts. Details regarding the fighting in and around Khan Yunus couldn't be verified, but local sources have reported that Israeli forces have been spotted in the city's vicinity, including its refugee camp. Local medics reported that hospitals were overflowing with dead and wounded, with supplies running out. Israeli forces have also reportedly continued their assault in the Jabalia refugee camp in the north of the Strip. Netanyahu again stated on Tuesday that Israel will retain security over Gaza after the war ends so that the Strip is demilitarized, dismissing the idea that an international force would occupy the Strip saying that only the Israeli military is capable of maintaining security control. He also reiterated Israel's goal of destroying Hamas. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken announced on Tuesday that the U.S. will implement a new visa restriction policy targeting individuals, quote, believed to have been involved in undermining peace, security, or stability in the West Bank, including through committing acts of violence. The details of the ban policy haven't been announced, and any affected Israel settler won't be named. Gaza's health ministry reports that the conflict has left over 16,000 people, including over 7,000 children, in the Gaza Strip dead. The official Israeli death toll stands at 1,200 people, and there are still over 100 hostages being held in the Gaza Strip. Thank you, Adam, for those facts. We'll start this round of spins with a pro-Israel narrative from the Jerusalem Post. Though this has been a tragic war, Israel cannot allow Hamas to survive. Hamas seized upon last week's temporary pause to mark Israeli positions and prepare itself for continued attacks on Israeli forces in Gaza. Indeed, the pace at which Israeli forces maneuvered in Gaza threw Hamas's military leadership off kilter, and Israel will have to work intelligently in its campaign in the south of the Strip to fully eliminate the terrorist group so it can never launch an attack like October 7th again. 
and Middle East Eye is going to counter that with a pro-Palestine narrative. Israel continues to demonstrate that its war is not against Hamas, but against the Palestinian people as a whole. Nowhere in Gaza is safe, and Israel has effectively rendered the north of the Strip unlivable. Unfortunately, the temporary ceasefire only gave civilians a few days of relative rest, and now Israel has returned to killing Palestinians at an unprecedented rate. The U.S., Israel's biggest ally, must exert more pressure to end the war. And there's another nerd narrative from Metaculus saying there's a 50% chance that Israel will have de facto power in the Gaza Strip on January 1st, 2025. In the UK, Boris Johnson faces a COVID inquiry. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Politico, CNN, BBC News, Sky News, The Times and The Independent. Former UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson began his two-day COVID inquiry on Wednesday by apologizing for the pain, loss and suffering. He was soon interrupted by the inquiry's chair, Heather Hallett, who ordered protesters in the gallery to sit down, after which four of them held up signs before they were removed. Afterward, Johnson said he could understand the victims, that he did his level best, and acknowledged that things could have been done differently. When asked about his former senior aides claiming he was bamboozled by the science, Johnson said such criticism is wholly to be expected. Johnson became the first sitting prime minister to receive a fine from the police after he and members of his team were caught breaking their own COVID lockdown rules. Johnson also apologized to former senior civil servant Helen McNamara for not calling out disparaging remarks about her, though he did stand by former health secretary Matt Hancock despite his defects. The former prime minister also apologized for shaking hands with COVID patients in March 2020 and for not canceling sporting events that same month. Other regrets he had included the timeline of his lockdowns, the circulation of the virus in the residential care sector, and the eat-out-to-help-out scheme. However, Johnson did place some blame on the different messaging coming from the various governments within the UK, also arguing that his administration did its best at the time, given what we knew, given the information I had available to me at the time. The former prime minister also said he regretted the toxic reputation of his team's culture, specifically one individual who suffered abuse during WhatsApp exchanges seen by the inquiry, and said the gender balance of his team could have been better. He also admitted to relying on the summaries of information from medical experts rather than reading the eight- or nine-page briefings provided to him. Johnson acknowledged that reading all the minutes from the hundreds of meetings concerning the pandemic would have been better, instead of the one or two he looked over. He did, however, defend not leading five cabinet meetings in early 2020 and denied taking a long holiday early on in the pandemic. Melissa, thank you for the facts. We're going to start this off with a left narrative provided by The Guardian. The disgraced former prime minister was as wishy-washy during his hearing as he was in office. He failed to protect his nation from COVID because, unlike even the most controversial prime ministers in the past, Johnson had no vision for the country other than putting himself in charge of it. His indifference to governing style and policy resulted in his countless fatal failures, ranging from his absence from cabinet meetings in February 2020 to the continual indecisiveness in every policy until he left office. Here's the right narrative from The Telegraph. 
Johnson's liberal critics are not wrong about his willingness to flip-flop on policy. What they don't inform you, however, is that the direction he flip-flopped was consistently moving in favor of their failed lockdown policies. After Johnson rightly rejected calls for lockdowns in early 2020, the backlash from critics scared him into a 180-degree turn, thus imposing the strictest lockdowns possible. All this inquiry cares about is ensuring the country's future pandemic responses are draconian, so they'll drag Johnson through the mud until the public agrees with them. And the nerds think that there's a 4% chance that Boris Johnson will return as the leader of the UK Conservative Party before 2026. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. And I think that's a generous 4%. <laughs> yeah, I don't think anyone's dragging him through the mud. I think he's doing that himself. Oh, I guess I could have read those more than two of those, uh, you know, briefs on the pandemic. Right? What else was he doing? <laughs> My gosh, you're trying to figure out, um, yeah, this looks right. It's like, I agree. It's like Animal House over We're there. We're going to dinner tonight, right? Yeah, no, but everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> Adam, do you think they're going to put Boris Johnson in the next uh, season of The Crown? Is he going to make oh, it? Oh, I think he's enough of a character for certain that he'll make it into the next season of The Crown. <laughs> That'll be interesting to see that portrayal. President Biden says he's not sure he'd be in the 2024 race if Trump wasn't running. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, NBC, CNN, Fortune, and WION. U.S. President Joe Biden said that he may have decided against running for a second term if former President Donald Trump wasn't running for president in 2024. At a campaign fundraiser outside Boston on Tuesday, Biden said, If Trump wasn't running, I'm not sure I'd be running. Biden returned to the White House Tuesday night where reporters asked him if he would exit the race if Trump drops out. He told reporters, no, not now. The 81-year-old has faced questions from both sides of the political aisle about his age and mental capacity, while many voters report dissatisfaction with Biden's administration and are worried about his age. The president believes that he has the best chance of defeating Trump in 2024. Biden is ramping up his fundraising efforts as he headlined three fundraisers in the Boston area Tuesday, with four more events scheduled before Monday. Singer James Taylor played at one of the Boston events with tickets costing up to $7,500. The Biden campaign received millions of dollars before Tuesday's events. Biden focused his campaign speeches on the threat of a second Trump presidency, saying, We cannot let him win. While neither Trump nor Biden has secured their party's nomination, both are on track to face off in a rematch of the 2020 presidential election. Biden will head to California to hold events with celebrities and politicians such as Steven Spielberg, Barbara Streisand, and Nancy Pelosi. Meanwhile, at a town hall hosted by Fox News's Sean Hannity, Trump predicted that Biden wouldn't be the Democratic nominee, citing questions about his mental and physical health. Thanks, Adam, for the facts. And here's the Republican narrative from PJ Media. If Joe Biden weren't destroying the U.S. at the behest of the Democratic Party, it would be hard not to feel bad for him. While his handlers have done their best to shield him from the public for the last three years, it's becoming increasingly clear that Biden isn't fit to serve as president, a reality that his most recent comments seem to have acknowledged. Republican narratives are generally followed up with Democratic narratives. I've got one here provided by the New Republic. Biden's comments weren't an admission that he isn't qualified for the race, but rather they were meant to stress the direness of a Trump win. 
The former president's ineptness knows no bounds, as evidenced by his latest jokes regarding Biden's health. Trump doesn't possess the temperament to be president, and Biden is the best candidate to face off against him. And here's a narrative C from Esquire. Americans have made great progress in opposing discrimination upon characteristics such as race, gender, and sexual orientation. Yet many people seem to be just fine with blatant ageism. At every turn, older politicians on both sides are heavily scrutinized after every slip-up as the media calls for them to retire. The fact is that many of these 70-plus-year-old politicians are wiser and more effective than their younger counterparts, and America's political system desperately needs seasoned leadership. And the Metaculous Prediction community is going to stop the spin with a nerd narrative. They think there's a 49% chance that Joe Biden will be elected U.S. president in 2024. I think the only thing that's going to keep Trump out of the Republican nominee seat is going to be a legal matter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think that, that jail. I'm not sure that's going to matter, sadly. Right? You think he'll show up in his orange ju- jumpsuit at the Republican? Uh, Absolutely. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. I've got a three-hour leave from my jail cell to come and thank you. Oh, thank you for the orange <laughs> balloons. I would appreciate that. Matches my jumpsuit. Now I'm just a big orange person now. <laughs> In our next story, Trump remarks he'll only be a dictator on day one. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Politico, Associated Press, Reuters, NBC, Euro News, and Deseret News. While speaking in a town hall on Fox News with Sean Hannity, former president and standing 2024 Republican primary candidate Donald Trump stated that he would not be a dictator, quote, except for day one, if he were to be reelected next year. When asked if he would promise to, quote, never abuse power as retribution against anybody, Trump replied after he had closed the border and had begun drilling, 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 he would not be a dictator. The former president was speaking in Davenport, Iowa, where the Republican Party begins its primary process on January 15, 2024. Trump has previously promised retribution against his political opponents if he were to return to the White House. When further asked whether he had plans to abuse power, to break the law, and to use the government to go after people, Trump stated that such behavior was occurring right now under the Biden administration. While President Joe Biden claimed that Trump's campaign intended to destroy democracy on Tuesday, the former president similarly accused Biden on Saturday of being the destroyer of American democracy. According to a new Deseret Harris X poll, 86% of Republican voters and 60% of all voters believe that Trump will win the 2024 GOP nomination. The former president currently leads primary polling by approximately 40% over Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Vivek Ramaswamy, and Chris Christie. Thank you, Melissa. We're going to begin this round of spins with an anti-Trump narrative provided by The Washington Post. The path to a Trump dictatorship is certainly on the table. Already, the former president faces several criminal charges concerning his attempts to undermine American democracy during the January 6th attacks, as well as his role in electoral interference schemes. Yet, despite this, Trump continues to display strong polling numbers against his GOP rivals and, most importantly, President Biden. It's important, given this context, to not give in to pessimism and continue to fight to protect America's values at the ballot box as the 2024 election becomes ever closer. Here's the pro-Trump narrative from the Gateway Pundit. 
While far-left media outlets continue to accuse President Trump of intending to use illegitimate power and force if he were to return to office, there is an audible hypocrisy in the lack of scrutiny concerning the very same behavior by Biden and his administration. Sadly, despite knowing this all too well, corrupt left-leaning media outlets will continue to not publicly recognize this. As long as those with similar ideologies stay in power, legitimate use of authority seems not to matter. And the nerds think that there's a 48% chance if the U.S. presidential election is Trump versus Biden, that Trump will win. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. In a recent report from the mayor of Kiev, he believes that Zelensky is becoming an autocrat. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Independent, New York Post, LBC, and Yahoo News. Speaking with Swiss and German media outlets, Kiev Mayor Vitaly Klitschko has claimed that Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is becoming increasingly autocratic, though he didn't reference any particular incident or policy. Klitschko made his comments in an interview with Switzerland's 20 Minutes and Germany's Der Spiegel, continuing to say, at some point, we will no longer be any different from Russia, where everything depends on the whim of one man. According to The Economist, internal polling in Ukraine marks Zelensky's trust rating at 32 percent, with the number having been on the decline for months. Despite his criticisms, Klitschko expressed that Zelensky should continue as president until the war with Russia is over. There have long been tensions between Klitschko and Zelensky, with the president accusing the mayor of failing to sustain Kyiv's bomb shelters last winter. His comments come as some analysts have said the country's counteroffensive has reached a stalemate. A presidential vote was scheduled for March, but under Ukrainian martial law, elections were barred until the end of the war with both the ruling government and opposition politicians agreeing that the alternative would be risky and difficult to navigate. Klitschko's accusations come after Ukrainian General Valery Zaluzhny criticized the president last month, saying that the front line had reached a stalemate and warning that the war could drag on for years, something Zelensky denied. The president has yet to comment on Klitschko's interviews. Thank you, Adam. We'll begin with a pro-establishment narrative from the Kyiv Independent. Zelensky may not be perfect, but he's far from an autocrat. Taking the helm of a country during wartime is a huge task, and he's doing the best he can given the circumstances. Both his critics and supporters agree that he should remain in power until the end of the war. So what is the good in undermining him further with baseless accusations? Klitschko's comments are merely the symptom of a years-long rift between the two. And Unheard is going to follow that up with an establishment critical narrative. Zelensky is not the perfect leader that the Western media portrays him to be. Both before and during the war, he has made several large mistakes, and he is beginning to pay for it. With a failing counteroffensive and increasing war fatigue, Klitschko's comments are indicative of a wider opinion as the public loses trust and confidence in him as a leader. And we have another nerd narrative from Metaculus saying there's a 5% chance that Vladimir Zelensky will win the Nobel Peace Prize before 2024. I think there's a better chance of him winning the lottery. I know. <laughs> the Hollywood Actors Union approves a new three-year contract. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, U.S. News & World Report, the Associated Press, ABC News, NBC, and The Guardian. 
The longest strike against Hollywood studios came to an end on Tuesday night when members of the SAG-AFTRA Actors Union voted to accept the conditions of a new three-year contract. According to SAG-AFTRA, 78% of voters approved the agreement with Walt Disney Company, Netflix, and other Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, or AMPTP, members. Only 38% of eligible members cast a ballot. SAG-AFTRA represents approximately 160,000 actors and other media professionals. Had the agreement been rejected, it would have meant going back to the negotiating table, and if leaders had demanded it, the actors might have gone back on strike. The agreement stipulates the first-ever safeguards against artificial intelligence use in performances, including requirements for consent and compensation to protect performers from replacement with AI. It also increases minimum rates by 7% in the first year. In a statement, SAG-AFTRA President Fran Drescher stated, I'm proud of our SAG-AFTRA membership. They struck for 118 days to grant the TV Theatrical Negotiating Committee the necessary leverage to secure over $1 billion in gains, along with the union's first-ever protections around AI technology. The deal's approval signals the end of a difficult time for Hollywood, during which unions sought protections for what they considered to be existential threats to their members' futures, effectively shutting down the entertainment industry and creating significant financial challenges for tens of thousands of workers. Thanks for the facts, Melissa. The spins are going to begin with a narrative A provided by U.S. News. The union announced victory in one of the most fierce labor disputes in Hollywood history, with the majority of voting SAG-AFTRA members backing the agreement, along with the first-ever restrictions in the use of artificial intelligence in filmmaking. The Actors' Union received the wage increases and streaming incentives they demanded. Negotiations for new contracts by other Hollywood unions beginning next year will benefit from the actors' hard-fought wins. And here's Narrative B from Barron's. Tuesday's vote by union members to ratify the new agreement was applauded by the Hollywood studios. The 118-day strike by the actors is officially over with the signing of the new contract. Everyone wanted to put a stop to this nasty and ill-conceived dispute, especially the entertainment industry. With this agreement, Hollywood can now finally resume work with full force. And the nerds have another opinion. They think that there's a 50% chance that an algorithm will be able to predict the big five personality traits of a person from a naturalistic photograph or video after December 2025. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Extroversion, agreeableness, openness, conscientiousness, and neuroticism. In case you were wondering what the big five personality traits are. Thank you. Was that neuroticism or, or eroticism? It was neuroticism. <laughs> neuroticism. Okay. I just wanted oh, but to make sure. To, I... to be fair, eroticism is number six. I... <laughs> so. <laughs> A U.S. senator claims that governments are spying on Apple and Google users. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Daily Mail, The Hill, Reuters, and CNBC. U.S. Senator Ron Wyden, the Democrat from Oregon, said Wednesday that unidentified governments are spying on smartphone users via their push notifications, the alerts that notify users of incoming text messages, emails, and news, among other things. He further stated that these governments are demanding Google and Apple to provide them with such user data. Push notifications aren't sent by individual apps, but rather facilitated by a smartphone's operating provider. 
Wyden warned in a letter to the U.S. Justice Department, or the DOJ, which he says means Apple and Google are in a, quote, unique position to facilitate government surveillance of how users are using particular apps. This data includes which app received the notification and whose Apple or Google account it was sent to. Wyden's staff didn't specify which governments were making these demands of the companies, but a source familiar with the matter claimed that both were U.S. federal agencies and those of the democracies allied to the U.S. The source also claimed these agencies were requesting the metadata so that they could, for example, uncover the identities of anonymous users of messaging app users. According to Wyden, foreign governments can force companies to turn over push notification data. However, he said in the U.S., Apple and Google aren't allowed to release such records to the public. In the letter, he argued that he would ask that the DOJ repel or modify any policies that impede this transparency. In response, a Google spokesperson said, We were the first major company to publish a public transparency report sharing the number of types of government requests, adding that they share the senator's commitment to keeping users informed about these requests. The DOJ has not yet returned news outlets' requests for comment. And here's the pro-establishment narrative from Engadget. This report confirms what many already know. Big tech collects every ping received on users' phones. According to Wyden, this information is then shared with lawmakers, both accountable and unaccountable to U.S. law, something even the app owners can't do anything about. These large companies may promise to keep users' information secure, but evidence shows that they cannot be trusted to do so. The establishment critical narrative is provided by Bloomberg. While big tech companies may seem like indomitable giants that have the power to do whatever they want, the fact is that they are beholden to federal regulation just like any other business or individual. Despite Apple and Google's best efforts to keep their users' data secure, they are bound to comply with government requests. It's not big tech that should be villainized, but the governments that are actually behind this concerning piracy violation. Do you keep tape or anything over your camera, Melissa, so that people can't spy on you? No, because there's there's so many. And I know I get it when people do, but um, but I do have a uh, one of those chips on my phone that's supposed to, like, keep all the radiation out of your face. <laughs> well, OK. <laughs> I haven't heard about that chip. I'm going to give me one of those. Yeah. I just keep 10. I just wrap my phone in tinfoil and that usually. Oh, you shouldn't do that. It's all over TikTok. Don't do really? it. Really? Yeah. Gosh, oh, my gosh. It probably intensifies the radiation. It right? does. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I'm going to die. Yeah. The World Food Program suspends its distribution in North Yemen. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, the World Food Program, Reuters, the Associated Press, Barron's, and Arab News. The World Food Program, or WFP, announced the suspension of its general food distribution in northern Yemen on Tuesday, citing limited funding and disagreements with the Iran-backed Houthi rebels, who control the area, over how to supply those most in need. The decision was taken in agreement with donors after nearly a year of negotiations with the Houthis failed to produce an agreement to reduce the number of people supported from 9.5 million to 6.5 million, the WFP said. It added resumption of supplies could take up to four months due to supply chain disruptions. However, other programs, including nutrition and school feeding programs, would continue to ease the decision's impact, according to the UN agency. 
The WFP also said general food distribution will continue in areas controlled by the Saudi-backed Yemeni government, based in the southern port city of Aden, with a focus on those most in need. The WFP statement came a day after the U.S. announced it may establish a naval task force with partner nations to escort commercial vessels in the Red Sea after the Houthis fired ballistic missiles at three ships on Sunday. It was their latest attack on commercial vessels in one of the world's most vital shipping routes. The capture of the capital Sana'a by the Iranian-backed Houthis in 2014 prompted a military coalition led by Saudi Arabia to intervene in support of the Yemeni government. Since the war erupted in 2015, the most impoverished country of the Arabian Peninsula has been experiencing one of the world's most severe humanitarian crises. In late October, the Rome-based WFP and the UN Food and Agriculture Organization issued a warning that the acute food crisis in Yemen is likely to worsen by April 2024. To protect basic livelihoods and improve food access, both UN bodies called for urgent and increased aid to Yemen and 17 other hunger hotspots. Thanks, Melissa. The pro-establishment narrative is provided by the public's radio. This has been a painful decision for the WFP due to a drop in aid resources and the fact that the Houthis have prevented an agreement on the establishment of a secure and accountable aid distribution mechanism. However, it is not only the Houthi-controlled areas in Yemen that are affected. The WFP had to make similar decisions in almost half of its global operations as the organization struggles with declining funding for its programs, as does the entire humanitarian sector. The international community must act now to fulfill its humanitarian responsibilities. And here's the establishment critical narrative from Al-Mayadeen. While the WFP blames the Houthis for its disastrous decision, it was a politically motivated measure taken under U.S. pressure in violation of international humanitarian law. It is no coincidence that the move comes just after the Houthis are launching operations in support of Palestinians in Gaza who are suffering their own humanitarian apocalypse at the hands of Israel. The Yemeni people will not back down and remain committed to supporting the Palestinians' just struggle for freedom and dignity. And the nerds are going to speak up again. They think there's a 50% chance that Yemen will no longer be classified as being a state in civil war by March of 2027. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Our final story today reflects a recent study stating that Earth is nearing five climate tipping points. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, Bloomberg, New Scientist, Nature, and Climate Action Tracker. According to the Global Tipping Points Report, put together by more than 200 researchers worldwide, at the current level of warming, the Earth risks triggering at least five tipping points and posing exceptional threats to humanity. The five-sided tipping points are the collapse of the Greenland ice sheet, the collapse of the West Antarctic ice sheet, the mass die-off of warm water coral reefs, the thawing of Arctic permafrost, and the slowing of North Atlantic subpolar gyre circulation. The report suggests that the die-off of coral reefs is likely at current temperatures, while the other tipping points are possible. Published on Wednesday to coincide with the COP28 climate summit in Dubai, the study warns that triggering one tipping point, quote, could trigger another in a kind of dangerous domino effect and have catastrophic impacts on humanity, such as spiking food security crisis. 
Tim Linton, lead author of the study, based on the assessment of 26 climate tipping points, warns that the world must find and trigger some positive tipping points that accelerate action down on an alternative pathway, as the current policies are inadequate to face the unprecedented threat. The study comes a day after Climate Action Tracker estimated that their emissions targets for 2030 put the planet on track to heat up by 2.5 degrees Celsius by the year 2100, despite promises from world governments at COP26 in Glasgow to try to limit it to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Well, those are the sad facts. Adam, here are the narratives, starting with a narrative A from the Hindustan Times. The world is currently on a disastrous trajectory. Tipping point risks threaten to trigger fundamental, abrupt, and irreversible changes to our planet, as well as cause dire and horrific effects on human lives. The Global Tipping Points Report is a clear warning to world leaders that the global community must take bold, coordinated policies across multiple sectors, including the phase-out of fossil fuels and land-use emissions by 2050, to tip the odds in favor of billions of people. And the spin's going to continue with the narrative B provided by Physics Today. The Global Tipping Points Report has yet to clarify how close we are to crossing the tipping points and what the exact impacts would be if we did. Science can't predict everything precisely because the dynamics and outcomes of natural and social systems arise from the interplay of many factors and choices. As the worst uncertainties about climate change are outside the scope of climate models, such warnings must be taken with a grain of salt. More analysis and less alarmism is needed. And the nerds have the final word from the Metaculous Prediction community. They say there's a 50% chance that the 2 degrees Celsius climate threshold will be crossed by January 2048. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Thursday, December 7th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. To find out more about Verity, visit our website, verity.news, or download our app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Verity.